Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I also want to let our listeners know that we're live streaming on Facebook on the Resiliency Within Facebook page. Um, today's show is entitled Advocacy and Healing the Mental Health Effects of Climate Change. And I want to welcome a warm hearted welcome to my friend, Lisa Van Sistren. And she is going to share many things with us today, but I want to talk a little bit before she gets started about we have had just a heck of a month. I think we have seen all over our country, actually all over the world, children and adults who've witnessed a series of climate-related occurrences. Um, right now, as the show is, is, is getting on the air, Florida is on alert as there's another hurricane um, approaching that state. Um, we have seen the heartbreak of the dev devastating firestorms in Lahaina, Hawaii, and in Washington State. And we in California, where I live, we had a hurricane. We've never had a hurricane in all the years that I've lived here. So there is something happening. And But the aftermath of these events takes a toll on the physical and mental health of all of our citizens, children and adults. So Dr. Lisa, which I'm going to refer to her today as Dr. Lisa, she's a recognized authority in the realm of climate change's physiological and psychological impacts. Um, and she's going to talk to us in a little bit more in detail about what we can do to not only heal ourselves, but I think also importantly, she is one of um, the leading expert witnesses in the country where she testifies on the impact of climate change on our population and on human beings. But I want to tell you a little bit more about her. She's an, um, in general and forensic psych, she is a general and forensic psychiatrist in Washington, D.C., and she's an expert on climate change, as I've already um, spoken about. In 2011, she co-authored The Psychological Effects of Global Warming on the U.S., while why the U.S. mental health system is not prepared, which, oh my gosh, Lisa, you are so right. In addition to community organizing on climate issues, she serves on the boards of Earth Day Network, um, the Physicians for Social Responsibility, and is a co-founder of the Climate Psychiatry Alliance, a group dedicated to promoting awareness and action on climate from a mental health perspective. She, as I stated already, she's an expert witness. She's going to talk to us a little bit more about that. And in 2006, she actually even sought the Democratic nomination to the U.S. Senate from, from Maryland. We need people like you in, in the Senate. Um, Dr. Lisa, and she's a frequent con contributor on television, radio, and print media. Her book, Emotional Inflammation, Discover Your Triggers and Reclaim Your Equilibrium During Anxious Times, was published in April 2020, and she is the editor of a soon-to-be-released book, Climate and Your Mind. Whoa, that's a lot. I could, <laughs> I could say more about you, but I think that's a good start. So as we're getting going today, Dr. Lisa, what's on your mind? Well, uh, first of all, thank you, Elaine. What's on my mind is how much you have done for so many people. And I, it's a privilege, uh, frankly, to have you share uh, the audience that follows you. And so I'm very, very grateful. Well, so thank you so much for being here, of course. And um, it's, uh, I think we've done a lot of work together. And, and we both, I think, share a passion for helping 
people understand the human toll that these climate change occurrences are having on children and adults? Yes, uh, I think we do. Uh, and I, I think that a lot of other people are uh, also experiencing these feelings. And one of the things that uh, drives me is certainly, uh, you said, what am I feeling right now? Well, like everybody else, you know, if you're reading that, unless you're living in a cave, uh, you know that there are very distressing things happening and that uh, it feels as if uh, there's an instability. We don't feel a sense of certainty or control. Well, human beings don't like to feel out of control. And Mother Nature has told us that we're asking for it. We've been asking for it. And she's telling us that we're she's going to react. And so it feels as if this is a foreign land. So I'm no different from your listeners. Well, I, and I guess I'm going to have a, I'm going to question for you. You know, there's so many things in the field of psychiatry to get involved with. Why climate? What brought you to this kind of passionate um, advocacy that you have to letting people know around the world what is happening to, um, to we humans as a result of it? How did that come about? So curious. It, it came about very simply. Uh, first of all, I was attuned to the idea of energy issues and global warming at the time was a term that was new to me, but it was when I was running for office that I started hearing about some of the consequences of uh, using up more than the resources the planet can provide. So it was that that first got me going. And then I heard about Al Gore's training. I applied, I was accepted. And as I've gone along, people have asked me this question, how do a psychiatrist become so identified with it. Well, think about it. I'm saying this to the audience because I know you don't need to think about anything. You've already thought about all this. But uh, the work of a, a mental health professional is to identify behaviors that are problematic for us, maybe right now in the immediate or down the road, and to help a person unpack what keeps those behaviors alive and to help a person to stop doing things that are detrimental to him or herself and to society at large. So it's at the very epicenter of what we do as mental health professionals, just writ large. So how did you become an advocate and expert witness of this human mental health toll on climate change events? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about Montana that just had a victory. Sure. Yeah, we did. We did have a victory. And I do say we because this was the ultimate collaborative effort. And it's really fun. I'll just say I've been a psychiatrist in private practice. Boy, is it fun when you've got this great team. And that's not always a luxury that I have. So having lawyers there and people who are good at communications and logistics and everything else, this is at the case in Montana, that was really, uh, that was really a, um, uh, an exceptional experience. So I got involved with our Children's Trust, which is the group that is uh, involved in bringing children as plaintiffs to sue government for inaction on climate through a contact uh, at the Center for Health and the Global Environment. We both loved frogs. And my good buddy, Eric Shivian, who is a, a professor there, I didn't know he was a psychiatrist, but he was. He got me in touch with his good buddy, uh, Paul Epstein, 
Uh, and Paul, now the late Paul Epstein, put me in touch with our Children's Trust. And that was way back when they started in 2011. So here's the message that I would like to give people. And that is what is needed when we do the kind of mobilizing in, in any effort, and particularly in climate, is persistence. Be tenacious. These efforts have been going on for a long time. What we sometimes see are just the results of all those efforts, but never forget that everything we do counts. And so, uh, yes, so I've been working with uh, the uh, group, Our Children's Trust, since 2011. We had a case initially against the federal government and still do the Juliana case, 21 youth plaintiffs and Jim Hansen, the climate scientist. But what happened was we got our traction, our footing with Montana, which is a state suit uh, earlier. We got an, a court date earlier. And so we went to Montana first. And lest I get on a soapbox and not stop talking, I will not <laughs> stop talking for a second. No, I want to hear more about it because I think this is important that, you know, we sometimes see little, little clips on the news, but we don't, you know, so here are the children through this organization are suing the state saying you've got to pay attention. You are hurting us. Okay, so here's where that incredible team effort, and it's not just our children's trust, but think of this, and this is what really thrills me. Way back in 1972, a few enterprising people, and we had one of them there in court uh, testifying, decided that the Montana Constitution really needed a clause in it that protected people. And fought hard for a constitutional amendment that stated that the state that Montana had a responsibility to assure that the residents of Montana had a clean and healthful I'm sorry uh, yes a clean and healthful environment and with a lot of work you can get a constitution changed now, here's what's important when an administration comes in they might write executive orders the governor can say no to what his predecessor said or yes with a stroke of a pen legislatures are elected they switch parties they change the laws etc a constitution sticks it's really hard to change so that is called a green constitution a handful of states in the U.S. have green constitutions, and you can bet we're going after them, because what you can do is you can sue the state for violation of constitutional rights, and that is a sticking point. So that's what happened in Montana. Find out if you live in New York or Pennsylvania, Montana. Others have weaker statements, but find out if you don't have a constitution that has a green clause in it. There's one thing you can do. Start working on it. 1972, it happened. Wow. So um, so how would people go about finding out how to become a, you know, having this green um, state constitutional clause? Okay. So the first thing to do is to Google, does my state have a, a clause to protect uh, the environment, or what are the green constitutions or green clause in constitutions? You got to fiddle around depending upon your search engine. But if you look, you will find out if your state does, and most likely it doesn't. Hawaii does. We've got a case in Hawaii coming up. Uh, and uh, Pennsylvania does, as I said, in New York. And more than likely, if you're in another state from those I just mentioned, you don't have one. So 
that's a time where you can start to figure out how do you change a state constitution? Be the person that, you know, the real issue here is to lead by example. Bring in other people, work with other people. Um, I will, well, people are welcome to get in touch with me to find the sort of step one, step two uh, um, uh, efforts. It's actually in my, in my book, uh, Emotional Inflammation, the last chapter is unmobilizing. It was really fun uh, to write that last chapter because you know what? When you're taking action, you feel empowered. And one of the most distressing things about climate is when we feel so vulnerable. And when we take action, particularly action in a group, that's the feeling of agency. And, and, and Dr. Lisa, I, I love you for that, that, you know, I know that you feel a lot of despair over what's happening to our climate. And some people might turn away and say, oh, there's nothing I can do, but you haven't done that. And so I was hoping also to talk a, a little bit about this anxiety, because I've heard so many terms echo anxiety, you know, climate dread, climate anxiety. There's so many new terms like in our academic literature that we both read. Um, but what does it really mean? Let's kind of take it to simple language that all of us can understand. Okay. All of those terms are essentially interchangeable. And some of us, of us prefer to use one term over another, depending upon our temperament style, maybe the experiences we have. It's like saying, I feel a little under the weather today emotionally, or, you know, I'm depressed or I'm this. We use words that are synonyms all the time. All this uh, emphasis on, is it eco-anxiety or eco-dread? Is it uh, grief? Is it climate grief? Is it climate distress? Is it all this? And I laugh because I, I laugh because I sort of poo poo it all. But I got in the you know at midnight when I get the itch, I've gotten online and I have uh, gotten a number of these URLs. So I I have the climateanxiety.net. I have eco grief, eco anger, climate anger. I've got them all. But forget about it. It's all being upset about what's happening to our climate. That's all you need to know. And so I guess there's that one trajectory of having the anxiety about what many of us know is happening to our climate. But I would like to kind of um, also talk about what are the cumulative effects on children and adults? When you go and you're an expert and you testify in front of these different um, state legislatures so they know what's happening illuminate us, let people know, because look at all the things that are happening just today. Hurricanes coming towards Florida. We've got the horrible thing that happened in Hawaii. We have Washington State as well had a firestorm. I was talking to somebody um, up in Canada about their firestorms. I mean, it is happening and we need to know, does it affect children? Does it affect adults? Illuminate us. Okay. So, the testimony that I've provided has been testimony, uh, certainly written reports, and a testimony in court in Montana, showing that the state of Montana had violated the constitutional rights by some very specific legislation that they passed in violation of the Constitution. And the reasons, or one of the reasons that uh, they, the judge decided in our favor was that I could show them how the plaintiffs specifically were being harmed by climate disruption. But 
in a general sense, I will return to legislatures because that's the effort we're engaging in to appear at hearings because talking about what's happening to kids and the psychological suffering that they experience as a result of their fears, their anger, their despair, whatever it is, is something that it is very, very hard to shield yourself against. If you've got a climate scientist, not to downplay climate scientists, because obviously the foundation of everything that we're talking about is climate science, but you're not gonna get a legislator who uh, wants to deny the science to feel much. And every expert in messaging knows that if you can get somebody to feel something, you're much more likely to have them than if they're just using their cognitive thinking capacity. So we plan to specifically use young people who are already involved in climate issues. We're not grooming kids. These are kids who by history uh, have been involved in environmental affairs and we will have them testify themselves about what they're experiencing. And then we get an expert in. So I was the expert in Montana. I'll be the expert in Juliana. Ideally, we will have experts from every state because legislators like to li listen to people from their own state. And we will have an expert that says, here's the research and then talks about not only, and let's talk about kids. So first of all, kids are naturally uh, experiencing extreme weather events, fires, floods, storms, etc. Um, so that's number one, or extreme weather events they're experiencing now. But here's the real issue that I think, you know, if you could say to yourself, okay, once in a million, you know, one in a thousand year storm, but that's not the case. They know that climate scientists are saying with increasing and in frequency and intensity, we are going to be seeing all these extreme weather events. So what have they got? Something that I dubbed pre-traumatic stress. They're thinking about everything that's coming. And so you see a cumulative toll of worry. And then what is worth uh, learning about knowing, particularly if you're going to be involved in this yourself, is what's called adverse childhood experiences. And what we know from studies, research, very, very now um, uh, vetted uh, extensively, is that the more you experience traumatic events when you're young, the more likely you are to have behavioral problems, behavioral problems that lead to illness, and behavioral problems that can spell an early death. So there you have it. Children are at the tip of the spear. They are most vulnerable. They don't have power other than what we in a, uh, jostle them into, so to speak, when we work hard to bring them before people who can make the policy changes that are needed. Well, and I kind of I want to add a little bit to what you're saying. You know, I've been working with the community resiliency model in many places around the world in the aftermath of um, these horrible climate events and seeing and hearing about the adverse child experiences. But there is a compilation. It's not just one. I mean, in, in the South of the United States, hurricanes, there's hurricane season, but there's an increased frequency in terms of not only how many, but also the power of the hurricanes coming in. And so that means that every time the, a child listening to the news today, let's say their parents are watching the storm, what's happening inside them, not only what they think, what they feel, 
but I'm very involved with the biology of trauma. And we know that their little nervous systems get what we call dysregulated. So their heartbeat starts beating fast and they start getting tense muscles. And it's like they have the foot on the accelerator of their nervous system and they don't know that there's a break that they can actually stop that process. We call it when it goes on for too long, toxic stress. And that's exactly what you're talking about, adverse childhood experiences that leads to the accumulation over time that not only causes many of our mental health conditions, but also affects our immune system. So we're not talking about something benign when we talk about these effects, not only about the pre, um, really thinking about what's going to be happening before it happens, but then what? Then once it does. So there are you many. You are absolutely right. Having We were evolved uh, to respond to stress, but short-term stress. Yes. We've not evolved uh, to endure chronic stress. And what happens, you are absolutely right, that the brain changes when it is confronted with chronic stress. So does our biology. As you said, cardiac issues, blood pressure, heart rate, respiration rate, our immune systems are compromised. We have memory issues. We know that when we're under stress, our best thinking is not taking place. We make bad decisions when we're under stress, or at least we don't make great ones. And so in our, in every way, uh, well, every way, in our neural, our, our digestive tracts are affected by stress. And so it, it, it covers phys, uh, physically, our entire bodies are affected by stress. And you're, here's another point, is it's not just if you had uh, that extreme weather event, there's secondary trauma. You know, we're not potted plants sitting here uh, watching what's going on. We, in identification, uh, empathic identification, we experience stress secondhand. So uh, it, it's like secondhand smoke. We're, we're getting exposed to it, hearing about it, seeing it, reading it, knowing that others are suffering. So I have a question for you. So when you go in and, and you talk about like what you're talking about right now, you're an, an expert witness talking about the impacts, but you bring but, but the children who really are climate change advocates themselves, they come and talk about their experience. Could you maybe share a story about what the kids say when they come to yeah, um, these hearings? Because yes. I, I think that would be something important for us okay. to hear. Uh, let me, some of this, uh, the, what I can share with you is what took place in open court. Yes. I have evaluated the kids. Uh, the judge sees my report uh, and those who have a need to know see it. But in order to protect privacy, et cetera, I, that isn't shared. But in open court, and I'm so glad you brought this up, Elaine, because what is also in play that we don't think about and is so, so problematic, uh, and Julia Olson, the head of director of our Children's Trust, alluded to it when she was talking about the benefits of our victory in Montana, is that it's a victory for democracy. And one of the reasons that she said that, and I will um, develop it a little bit, is that when kids see that their government is not only not working for them, but is actually working against them, and that's what they did in Montana, passing laws that prohibited the consideration of climate in making environmental decisions, they begin to doubt 
their institutions. They don't trust government anymore. Well, trusting in government is the sine qua non, what is necessary for stable society. Well, you know, I don't need to tell your listeners what happens when society becomes destabilized. So we make bad decisions. We will often vote for people who are nothing but bullies and tyrants because they come across as strong and they say they're going to protect us from the people who threaten us. And when you're feeling vulnerable, you're willing to give up some of your long cherished values in favor of feeling protected. So, you know, you do the math that doubt about our institutions is one of the most grievous blows that uh, affects our children. So when you had this victory in Montana, I imagine those children. Oh, yeah, I was going to tell you what. Yeah, you're quite joyous about that. Can you tell me maybe one of the the stories that the children shared? Right. Oh, yeah. You, you, I got off on a riff. (laughs) Um, So all connected. Okay. So here's the one that really blew my mind. And I might not be saying it exactly right because somebody corrected me, but I actually didn't understand the correction. But the gist of the story is the same. As a sixth grader, she raised money for solar panels at her little public school. Well, she was extremely successful and raised a lot of money. But here's what happened. She raised more money than the state regulations would allow to be spent on solar panels, renewable energy. So the money she raised was in part used to buy solar panels, but the rest went in to the public of the treasury and was obviously used uh, to burn fossil fuels uh, for energy. So talk about eroding sense of trust in your institutions. I mean, it boggles the mind. Uh, and then of course, that the state of Montana this was the theme all the way through, was that having barred agencies and policymakers from considering climate, even though the the climate science is now indisputably accepted by the people who are uh, in science, uh, the idea that they would simply wave it away and say, we're not considering it. Well, how in the world are you going to have any trust? So in you have this little sixth grade advocate going, no, I raised money for solar and you put that in the, reg- the the general fund and it's not being used for what it's supposed to do to help our environment yes. and, and the climate of Montana. I have to say, we're going to go on break for just a second, but my dad was born in Libby, Montana. And so when you talk about Montana, um, uh, Lisa, it's very dear to my heart. And I am so happy that this wonderful little girl, and I imagine other young people really advocated not only for their own well-being, but what I'm really struck about the well-being for their community. They it do. wasn't just about me. It was about all of us. And that's so important as we really are not only citizens of our the state of Montana, but of the United States, when we really become global citizens and caring about our entire Mother Earth. So, oh, so I am so um, uh, encouraged by this decision and so encouraged about the work you're doing. So, um, we are going to be back in just a, a couple minutes and we will continue this dynamic conversation with Dr. Lisa Van Sestren. 
Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller Karras book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I am with Dr. Lisa Van Susteren. We are talking, she's one of the leading climate advocates in our country. She's a psychiatrist. We have had a very lively conversation about her being an expert witness in the case in Montana that was just successful. And we're going to hear some more um, stories that are public record of the children. And also, I think it's important to um, maybe share with them about the parents who advocated for their small children um, who had physical um, problems that are exacerbated by climate conditions. Yes. So I'll uh, start first with physical conditions. What uh, people need to know, the audience uh, listeners need to know, is that wildfires are very common in Montana. And uh, the air quality sometimes in the summer is so bad that kids can't go outside. They have to stay in the house uh, during the summer months. So they can't uh, ride their bikes, they can't walk around, they can't uh, exercise. And, you know, Montana, this is Montana, this is not Manhattan. Kids are outside. And when they do go outside, they wear uh, masks so that some of the impurities are uh, reduced. But when kids have compromised uh, lung function, and kids develop asthma, or in the case of one of the plaintiffs, even the younger plaintiff, was born with a condition 
that uh, reduced his lung volume. And so his breathing wasn't as effective as a normal kid or as a, a kid without that, uh, with normal sized lung. And so he's at a, uh, an additional disadvantage to uh, that air quality. So uh, kids can't go outside and play for crying out loud in the, in the summertime. So, um, and that doesn't even address the fact that some kids have seen huge swaths of land burned down. Uh, they've lost, and no one in this uh, group of plaintiffs lost his house, but they did lose huge sections of their property. And they recognize that many of the animals that they've come to love uh, have been incinerated in, in these fires. Uh, many of these kids love to fish. These are real bona fide outdoor kids. And they go to streams that are dried up with fish, you know, with their tummies upside down uh, because there's no water. Uh, and uh, others have uh, had to evacuate suddenly. Uh, in one instance, a child, there was a photo that deeply affected me. Uh, you know, I've known that they were under uh, a threat from fires, but there was a photo of one of the plaintiffs, and in, just in the back of his house, the hills were on fire. And he grabbed his little box of stuff uh, because at any minute, he it could have been that he turned around and saw his house for the last time. And what kind of uh, politician, policymaker uh, can hear something like this and not say, oh my gosh, I just didn't realize how damaging this is or this was. So their testimony was extraordinarily effective. Uh, and uh, I think that we can duplicate this across states and make everyone feel what it's like to be one of these children who is suffering grievously. Well, I'm going to want to come back, circle back to adverse childhood experiences because having that image, just even the image you say that haunts you, that secondary kind of traumatization that happens. But I also want to bring the awareness to our listeners that when you're in a fire, there's such a small, a strong smell of smoke that, that then that smoke becomes can be a long-term trigger, reminder. So you could be at a family barbecue and everybody's being festive. And all of a sudden the you smell the smoke from the barbecue. And instead of being happy, all of a sudden your heart starts to beat. You start feeling fear and you may not even know why you're feeling that fear, but your body goes into that stress response. And think about how many times we have barbecues, like in the summer when all those happen and those things are not necessarily connected. So I, one of the, one of the uh, I think the things that we have been very involved with is people being trauma informed. So they understand this mechanism that happens to children and adults, because that's what leads again to some of the reactions that can happen behaviorally in our body when we don't know how to turn those <laughs> those reminders off, those triggers off, and they plague us our entire life. And there's ways, there's healing that can happen. And I guess what I'd, I'd like to swerve is, is into the aspect of healing and your your um, concepts, your uh, impressions, and how can we heal this? What can we do? Um, we're really interested in your opinions about this. How can we help? Well, thank you, although you are the expert. But <laughs> I will say that... Uh, we can help with the healing. I don't think it'll ever be done 
because we're uh, going to always be needed for our work. And uh, there's a, a sort of, um, I, I'm reminded of the audience or tell them for the first time, your listeners, that I was very intrigued. There was a murder actually in New York City. Kitty Genovese was stabbed in front of her apartment. And the report was that a crowd didn't do anything. They didn't call the police or anything. Turns out that might have been a bit exaggerated. But she ultimately died because the guy attacked her again, and that was it. And there was a big soul searching about why would people not take action when they saw this threat? So lots of work, uh, studies, and one that is key was Darley and Latane. And what they found was that people, when there is a, what the best way to influence people, because we do look around for leaders, is that uh, there is a clear threat that we can show someone so you don't have to uh, pussyfoot around about climate. You can tell people uh, it's as dangerous as it is, obviously not young children, but adults. And then you immediately segue to, here's what you can do about it. And that is the one-two message because people say, oh, you can't be all doom and gloom. Well, that's not the point. It's a two-part message. Say it like it is and then say, here's what you can do about it. And there's tons of stuff we can do about it. And as I've said many times, nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. And when I've had people say, oh, what one person does doesn't matter, on the contrary, first of all, I mean, what is the whole foundation of democracy is that we're all out there voting because we know our votes are counted together. Get out there, do anything, do something, change the way uh, uh, business, uh, uh, consumer habits, uh, we add those. Uh, all of these changes, social changes can happen because of collective action. Well, you know, I, I, another thought came to me as you were talking. Because as I said, you could have stayed in your lovely office in Washington, D.C., seeing clients, right, and, and, and impacting many people on a one-to-one -one level. But there was something that happened to you. There was something that clicked in that made you decide that you were going to do something differently. We might have people listening to this show around the world saying, huh, well, what made her go from that? to the advocacy. I'm always interested in what prompts us to do that. Now we can say, oh, lots of information about climate, or maybe it was that image of that child with the firestorm behind him. But I'm just wondering if you can, I mean, maybe, I don't know if you know the answer to what I'm asking you about, but what was but it? it depends that on Dr. Lisa's gonna leave her office in Washington, DC, and she's gonna go to Montana and she's gonna do this. And and you're going to do this in many places. And I, you know, having known you, you are a very strong advocate. So you don't stay in that office. You do other things, but not everybody does. Just curious. What, what do you think that is about? Well, I think yeah, it's, do that. I, you know, a lot of things affect us. Uh, our personal experiences, to be sure. Our temperament style, to be sure. Our educational background, to be sure. The people that are around us, all of these things. And it's, really important for people to realize that depending upon all of those factors, we may want to do something that is different from the person sitting next to us. So if you are good at uh, websites uh, or you're good at text and writing things, uh, it doesn't, doesn't really, we're good at different things. And uh, for me personally, uh, I was in some respects late compared to some of the people that I was hanging around with, 
uh, in the early or the mid, uh, uh, you know, 2005, 2006. Uh, but I was raising children uh, and I had other responsibilities. So it was really my thinking that, well, geez, we would just run the numbers, see that we needed to stay below 400 parts per million, and we'd all just act rationally and get to work. So what happened was over time, I saw that wasn't the case. Some people have a sped up reaction because they got a pipeline that's going through their land and somebody came in and started cutting down trees. Well, you can get to be an activist real fast when stuff like that happens. Mine was a gradual um, growth of the feeling of outrage and fear for children. Uh, as a mom, and I have seen, this is not to say that men don't do plenty of things they do, but when I look up oftentimes when it's a caretaking role for the planet, by gosh, I'd be a liar if I didn't say it's often a matriarchy. I see women's spaces when it's caretaking, and when we're in the legislature or approaching the legislature on politics, I see a lot of guys. So we do have different leadership styles, and our, the cumulative effect of our experiences, I think, is what directs us. So for me, this is something that I could do. And I heard the cries. After all, that's what I do for a living, is listen to people's pains uh, and try to fix it. So that was my, it's kind of my tagline. Well, and I, you know, I was thinking as you're talking about myself, and I, I can remember really clearly being 11 and I had gone on my first trip to El Salvador. My mother was from El Salvador. And I was with family members and we were in the capital city. And I had never really seen abject poverty like I saw there. And I can still see her face, a woman holding a, an infant with, and she was begging for money for food. And she was clearly malnourished. And I, I often think back to why have I done what I've done in my life? There was something that clicked on me then that I was part of something bigger than myself. And that if I didn't take some kind of action, then how would we ever change those kinds of things, which is actually kind of similar to what, to what you were saying. But I think, you know, I want to ask all of you, you know, maybe there's something, it could be this conversation we're having right now that takes us into that, that different trajectory into our life. So I'm going to, I want to ask you, and I want to hear a little bit more, and I want you to share how people can get a hold of you too. But um, so, can you tell us more if there's people out there that are interested in policy? Because there might be people interested in helping people that are suffering in terms of mental health care, but it seems to me that it has to be both. Um, yes, although what I have found, we have put together a joint effort of the Climate Psychiatry Alliance, Climate Psychology Alliance, called the Outreach and Advocacy Committee. Uh, we're the ones that are essentially looking uh, for people to influence, not waiting for them to ask for a lecture or a, a presentation, whatever. We're looking, actively looking. And uh, people are involved in different aspects of this because we're good at different things. But one of the uh, realities is that each state is a little bit different. And one of the things we're asking a state to do in having a hearing is to organize some kind of a task force, although I hate the idea that it would take a long time, but you can get work done quickly to assess what the state's vulnerabilities and strengths are and to assess not just the physical aspects, but what mental health uh, uh, services are or gaps 
are there? Uh, and what about vulnerable populations? Are there brownfields? Are there people with socioeconomic disadvantages, et cetera? And to do a sort of an inventory. And uh, then uh, we can move on with, well, what do we do? And people will organize around, sometimes they like the educational aspect, and we certainly would love to have a good curriculum for kids. Uh, and one that's designed for the state. We would uh, be eager to have hospitals become more sustainable, have community garden types come and say, why have you got grass on your front yard as a hospital? Shouldn't you have native plants that have deep roots so they fix carbon? I mean, there all, there's a ton. Just reach out to me. I'd be so happy, uh, so eager uh, to have you connected. And well, we're going to say it more than once because we still have a few minutes more to talk. But what is your website and how can people get a hold of you and also your um, email address? Okay, so my website is simply my name and it's Lisa Van Susteren. And the only thing hitch is that it's the Dutch spelling of Lisa, though it's the American pronunciation. So it's L-I-S-E, although maybe L-I-S-A pops up. I never, never really checked. <laughs> Um, so, but the best way really is, and the easiest way is simply my initials, L, V as in Victor, S for Sam, and then the number 350 at me.com. And my husband says it sounds like I'm self-centered, but me is the <laughs> apple. That's the apple. Oh, yeah, I have that too. <laughs> well, um, so I want to also talk about, there's something that you and I, how we actually met, and maybe we should talk a little bit about that. So um, Dr. Lisa and I are both um, on the steering committee for the International Transformation Resilience Coalition that we call ITRC for short, because that's a big, long name. But maybe we should talk a little bit about the Community Mental Wellness and Resilience Act of 2023, because that certainly is an, an example of a group of dedicated people. And I always want to call out our dear friend, Bob Doppelt, who leads us. But let's talk a little bit about what, what do you think about this uh, Resilience Act? And do you want to say a little bit about it? I can say something about it as well. The uh, a real uh, noteworthy aspect of this is that it is the first time where a federal policy has been proposed for, so federal policy will affect all states that addresses the terrible toll that a community that is um, suffering uh, from either a physical deprivation or a psychological harm and has little recourse. This is a model for how people can work together. Right now, it's like the Tower of Babel. Everybody is talking a different language. And this enables people to come together to figure out solutions that are based on local conditions and local traditions. And by the way, that makes me think of saying to everybody, I am speaking to you from Piscataway lands uh, here in Maryland. So this is what is, uh, I think, particularly motivating, is that it arises from community, the collective experience of sharing resources and conditions and working together. And I'm very excited by it, too, because we certainly are living in some very divisive times politically, but this is a bipartisan effort. Republicans and Democrats have come together to, um, to sponsor this, this piece of legislation. And I think that it has the potential 
to really have these communities all over our country that are working like when you say that you know the pre post traumatic you know symptoms that people have we can actually work on prevention if we can help every community organized so that when these events happen they're ready to go and that means that can really mitigate reduce the impact of some of the traumatic stress responses that we both talk about that we know leads to that not only cumulative you know a trauma that can lead to behavioral challenges in our communities as well as physical um, health problems in individuals and also in communities. So, I mean, it's very exciting. And I, you know, I think that, you know, um, Dr. Lisa and I were talking before the show about sometimes we can get a little bit discouraged by what's happening, right? When we hear people denying, for example, that climate change exists and knowing there's such a body of evidence that actually says the opposite, that science is real and science is saying that this is happening. But I think your efforts, what you're doing, what we're both doing with the International Transformation Resilience Coalition are part of what else is true. I often say this on my show, um, Dr. Lisa, I say, yes, this is happening, but what else is true? And we have Dr. Lisa, advocating, being an expert witness at states and helping people understand. Because as much as we know about so many things, I think this is another thing to, I, I want to underscore, my husband's a judge and he doesn't know everything about, <laughs> about you know, uh, the psychological impact. Certainly he's married to me, so he's learned a lot. But I think that we can't assume that people who are in power understand what the impact of, um, climate change occurrences happen to people. I don't know if you want to say a little bit about that. Well, I, yeah, I got to answer my pants because <laughs> I, I do sometimes get upset when people don't realize. And I thought to myself, what, what do you don't, what don't you get about the fact we're burning the place down and the kids are screaming from the windows? What do you mean you're wondering what, that they're anxious and depressed and angry and, and all the rest? And you're right. It is because we've been in this business all this time. I don't understand what it's like to be a judge, frankly, and dispassionate. That would be impossible for me. So that's why working with our particular strengths and our experiences is so important and coming together to work together to help each other. And this was one of the beauties, as I was saying, and I want people to know that Montana wasn't just a couple of lawyers and a couple of expert witnesses. The Montana case was successful because so many people over the years and decades were dedicated to making Montana a clean and healthful environment. And uh, the uh, people who uh, have worked in politics there, the people who have reported, with it, the, frankly, how many politicians were on the dole from lobbyists from the coal, oil, and gas companies. The people, uh, Elaine, went, this was so gratifying because it was a little bit scary or intimidating. It, it was, you know, we knew that it was crunch time. We're walking up to the courthouse because it was at the top of a hill. And it's lined, the, the route is lined with people with signs encouraging us, telling us, you go, you know, so hollering at the kids and stuff like that. So being a part of this community and supporting each other in whatever way you can, don't ever forget that this is a team, that this is a team effort. 
Well, and I think the other other thing I want to say, like really emphasize is there's so much that we have to sift through regarding social media, shows like my own. But sometimes what we hear is not what else is true. Like all those people holding those signs, that little girl that raised that money for solar panels. I mean, oh my gosh, I'm never going to forget that story for her school. I mean, that's not national news, right? It's maybe it became national news. I hope she was she was interviewed by someone. But I think that we can shine a light on those things that you can, I can, all of you that are in your communities thinking, huh, I wonder if anybody's doing this in my community. Can I find out more about it? Um, yes, you can. And so, and you can, and you can reach out to, to Lisa. You can look up the International Transformation Resilience Coalition. You can send me an uh, email, Elaine at resiliencywithin.com, and I'll give you all these numbers and how to get in contact with people because I, this is, to me, there's Bob Doppelt has really helped me understand this when I first met him many years ago. It really is kind of an emergency that we do this now. Just not even kind of, it is. We have to work as a as a world community to really look at this issue so that we can really save our planet Earth. And I don't know if you want to say anything about that, um, Dr. Lisa. It, it, it is, as uh, Antonio Guterres, uh, the Secretary General of the UN said, it's code red for humanity. It's code red. Yeah. So I think that's what uh, maybe a message we want to leave our, our, our listeners with. We only have two minutes left, so I would love for you to say your email address again, please, and your website. Okay. Code red for humanity, big green light for opportunity. I just want to underscore that. That uh, So my email address, LVS, my initials, the number 350 at meme.com. Very and, easy to remember. Yes, it is. And my website is lisavansustran.com. Good luck spelling it. I've had to do it for uh, many, many years. <laughs> Better to remember the email, I think. And just put <laughs> the subject line, eager to help. Well, I want to thank you so much, my dear friend, for being on the show, for coming on. I just, I asked her about two weeks ago, I said, you've got to come on the show and talk about the work that you're doing. And she is, she showed up and she's here with me. I feel like we are definitely collaborators together in trying to make some impact. Um, And I also want to let people know that your book, um, Emotional Inflammation, is available at Amazon and take a good read of it because it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a good book. And that last chapter talks about what advocacy and how you can be part of that change. So um, until we meet again, remember what else is true. Yes, we're dealing with definitely a climate emergency, but you can be part of the change just just like Dr. Lisa is. So thank you again. And I know that we will meet again. You'll have to come back when the book, the ebook gets published. We can talk about it together. All right. Okay. Thank you to all your listeners and for having me. Okay. Thank you so much. This is Elaine Miller-Karis signing off for Resiliency Within. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karis, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within.
with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com.